episode number 83, Ben Sota, of the Zany Umbrella Circus, a conversation on showmanship. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. I am Eric Wolf, Brother Wolf, known to children all over the country. And I have a treat for you because I, mm, tonight, I have found, well, I have, I have run away to the circus. I found a gentleman, I saw him perform last night, and I was, I was so impressed with his ability to make what would be considered in some circles the normal, the small, spectacular. But I started thinking about what what does the circus have to offer us as storytellers? What does the circus have to offer us as performers? And how can we work to make what seems small, what seems normal, what seems just just as it is, what it is, to make that thing spectacular? So I I invited Ben Sota onto the show on the show because I wanted to hear from him how he did this. Ben studied at the San Francisco Circus Center, Trapeze Arts, and Acro Sports. He's produced over 30 shows and performed at the National Council on Foundations, the National Storytelling Convention at the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, at Al Hussan Amphitheater in Jordan, and hundreds of other venues. In the spring of 2006, Ben had the honor of performing at the White House. In June of 2006, he raised eyebrows by dressing in burlap while performing to senators and Congress people. More commonly in the White House, Ben can be found performing at arts festivals for social justice causes, community celebrations, and for schools and universities all over the world. The Pennsylvania Council on the Arts has selected Ben as an artist and resident teacher. He's also been recognized by the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh and is listed as an outreach teacher as a member of the Pennsylvania Performing Artists on Tour. Ben has worked hard to bring the circus to those who need it most. He has taught thousands to juggle, walk on tightrope, and perform trapeze. Many of the students come from at-risk backgrounds. Batch Adams once wrote about Ben's work, I hope all will generously support your work. It is real people-to-people aid. Ben, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. How did you get into the circus? Well, whenever I was a kid, my grandfather taught me how to walk on stilts and showed me some juggling. And I remember it all clicking one day. It was rainy. I couldn't do anything. And I just started just chucking things into the air. And then all of a sudden, rainy days are good for fueling artistic thought. It really kind of pulls things together. You're forced to live with yourself which is a great thing, I think. But what happened was it, it just became, it was pure fun. It was pure joy. It was a great way to, what we're always looking for is being able to share. And circus and kind of 
the abnormal, the magical, the fantastical can be shared so easily. And there's something about it. Whenever you do it, you get put in this category of being safe, of being loving, of being kind. And right away, all of the, you're not a stranger. It, it, there, there's a kindness to it. And you just kind of, there's a, acceptance happens. Not with everyone, but with a lot, with a lot. The hitchhiker on the side of the road that has his thumb up is not going to get picked up as quickly as a hitchhiker that's juggling three juggling balls. <laughs> I've heard this before. I've heard I'm this sure before. you have, yeah. It's true, though. It's true. There's something safe about it. And it's funny, though, because at the same time, there's also these ne- negative connotations about circus performers as well. And that's the beauty of it. The circus means absolutely nothing. By saying the circus, you're saying nothing whatsoever except for, well, that's just it. You're saying, I don't know. You're saying something unusual will happen. And it could be circus in the sense of the word where it's looked down upon or it can be looked at as the most amazing thing in the world. But simply people show up without too many expectations and from there, well, they all go on a trip together, which is what storytelling is all about. So when I saw your show last night, you seemed to be yourself. Yeah, I was really similar to myself. It's definitely myself, but in a hyper state of awareness, you know. And what I was trying to do was get people to be themselves as well, to get the audience members to be a little less clenchy, to just let their brains relax, let, you know, things that they wanted to have happen, let me help them have that happen, give them space. You know, I wasn't talking all the time. I I didn't rush to the next thing ever. There's no moments of, gotta do this now. You know, it was, let's think about that for a second. And what happens is the audience starts to create pictures in their mind and the performance becomes incredibly memorable because the audience is able to take ownership of it. These are all things I'm sure that most storytellers know, but it's definitely important. This idea of memorable, what defines that? What defines memorable? Well, it needs to... Memories work off of memories. So if you can link to other memories it'll become even more memorable. The first time you experience something, it's not all that memorable. The first time you had, well, unless it's a really big shocker. Something can be different and that makes it memorable. Well, I'm just thinking about within mm, your show. Sure within your show, you know. And within my show, the memorable comes in where you see a stage and you have no idea how a performer is going, to, how I'm going to engage you for an hour. There's an old seashell, there's a few juggling balls, an old radio. There's no sequence, there's no high-tech anything there. All of a sudden, all of those things become spellbinding, and they kind of work with it. And whenever you have an expectation, and the expectation is then shattered and taken to a completely amazing level, that's memorable. I'm going to say that. That's whenever things are fantastic. That's when things are just absolutely wonderful. To go and see a circus show um, and have your tickets weeks in advance and have that happen and know that you're going to some arena 
and know the building that you're going into is incredibly different than turning the corner and looking out at a field and unexpectedly seeing a circus tent that's set up there. So whenever the unexpected happens, whenever you can go against the obvious, what, 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 the planned, uh, things become incredibly memorable. I think that there's an old story. Um, the reason why we remember memories is that memories are linked to emotions. And whenever a caveman would walk past a cave and go inside and all of a sudden almost get eaten by some sort of animal, you better believe it, and make it out alive, they would that heightened emotion created memories and that cave person would obviously remember where that cave was. That's, you know, heightened emotion. I don't know. And it's fun. You know, sometimes you want to make things logical, and sometimes you just want to say it's just how they are, you know. <laughs> and both you know, people always teeter back and forth between the two. Well, one of the things I saw you doing last night that was really interesting was that you had some tricks that, as far as I could tell, didn't look very complex. But the showmanship you used with them made them seem very successful and of great importance to the audience. Could you talk about how you set that up, or how do you how do you plan out the show? Because you know, as you went along, I saw you getting into the spectacular. Right. But but at a certain point, you were just doing these tricks and talking about them in a normal way, and and the audience would applaud. They were very excited about that trick. Right. Well, you need to take the audience on a roller coaster. And you don't want to start, anytime you go on a trip, you pick a place, a meeting point, that's a very safe place. And then from there, you can branch out and have an all, a huge adventure. But you need to make sure that everyone's on board from the get-go. You don't want to make things totally haywire right away. The show starts out with um, a moment, and I've, I've found that it's really, really effective. You know, you need to have this, all of a sudden, we're going on an adventure together. What I have is a really old, you know, I have a, a conch seashell. And I just pull it out, and I'm, I tell them right away, I'm going to make a loud noise, and it's going to announce the beginning of the show. And I blow through it, and seashells, there's something about them. There's some sort of wavelength where it just kind of rattles your inside just a little bit. It just kind of wakes you up a bit. And it's that point, that, that noise, it's kind of a cue of suspended disbelief needs to start happening right now. So there's these little sound effects that I've planned into the show. From there, I go over and I start, I actually tune in. I figured out a way. I had this really old radio that was made in Germany. It's called a Nord, Nordmende radio. And I wired a CD player in through the phono jack. But the light turns on whenever I press phono. I tune in the station a little bit, and there's a delay, and it's warming up a bit. And then all of a sudden, music starts to come out of it. And those tube radios, I mean, those hypnotized people. People would sit around, you know, and it still works today. Everything that worked then still works now. That's something that we have to remember as storytellers, as artists. Um, there's There's definite value in it. So... The whole audience is tuning in and really straining to hear this little radio, and then all of a sudden I kind of tune it down and it switches over to the sound system, and kind of that flavor comes right in. But starting with a very small moment and then making the moment 
swell. I mean, that's always done in music, and that can be done visually. And uh, I definitely pay attention to that. The movements start dinky and little, and it's almost like haphazard that I'm able to pull things off. You know, the character is really clumsy. He wears a pair of burlap sack pants that are kind of itchy. He's kind of scratching at them from time to time. People wore those types of pants during the Great Depression. He has a hat that he just loves. It's his lucky hat. You know, he kind of feels disconnected and it needs to sit just right on top of his head. He has an ascot tie, a pair of red suspenders that he doesn't realize that are worn backwards so that you can see the white seams on them. And... There's just a clumsy, there's these moments of tripping, there's these moments of splendor, and he's living in a world of paradox where he's just living in this paradox all the time and not really caring, loving the paradox, loving it through and through. So the spectacular has a lot to do with this imperfection. Yeah. Well, you have to keep it. You have to be able to relate it to people because if they don't understand it, then they don't understand it. If you see someone just juggling seven balls, no one has a basis for that. They don't have an understanding for that. It's just simply, I can't do that. But if you start with an imperfection and you really mean it and you really look at it and you have these moments of of, of fear, tripping, uncertainty, and then build up and take them on that journey then all of a sudden it becomes more spectacular than you can ever imagine. And then the audience starts to take that spectacular and and because you took them on a journey, they don't even want to stop. Once the act ends, their brain is still on that trajectory where all of a sudden instead of, instead of seven balls, it becomes 11, it becomes 12, you know. And the, and the other thing that to make things spectacular is you really want the audience to cheer you on. I've found that I've seen a lot of street performing where the main character becomes kind of adversarial. You know, there's this, you know, it's almost like the audience is almost rooting for them not to be able to do it. And that is what I've stayed clear of as much as possible as a performer. I want the energy to nurture me. You know, I want the energy to just like give me time tons of encouragement whenever I'm on stage. And that's why, I mean, the show that I performed last night, it's called My Grandfather's Circus. Um, every time I perform it, I find that ideas are inserted into it. It, it. It's never performed the same way. It's working off of an outline. There are things that are scripted, but um, it can go in a completely different direction. And the direction usually is very positive because that's the way I'm, I'm encouraging the audience for that to happen that makes sense this is elizabeth ellis and you've been listening to the art of storytelling with children the piece you did last night you have various sets and you decide in the middle of the show which set you're going to do you have different different um, juggling series you're going to do? You have different balancing. Like, Are there some shows where you're mostly doing balancing? Are there some shows where you're doing all juggling in that particular story? The, the actual acts do stay the same. And I've been performing it for three and a half years, so it has started to stabilize a good bit. The story was written three years ago, and uh, the story is called, it's called My Grandfather's Circus, and 
It starts off in South Dakota during the Great Depression, and my grandpa told me all these stories about wearing burlap sack pants, static electricity being so strong that if you shook someone's hand that you would knock the other person over, you know, um, not being able to see the sun. He would also talk a good bit about, you know, maybe getting an apple for Christmas, eating catfish every day from his pond. And then he did. Then he also talked about, you know, not having all these things. The arts are always really alive whenever the economy is down the tube. You know, there's something about our creativity that just sparks and comes to life. And my grandfather basically shared that with me whenever I was a kid. So three years ago, I decided that I was going to go down to New Orleans. And I knew that that would be a situation that was pretty similar to what my grandfather dealt with. So... I created a character based off of his stories and based off of things that he told me. And that became, you know, that show um, that I wrote was written for children down in New Orleans. I got down there, I didn't know if I'd even be able to perform it. I showed up, and I did have, I had been doing, I guess, programs at schools for probably nine years, an awful long time. And I showed up, and my goodness, they loved the idea. I mean, every single school was stressed out. They were in a tent or else they were in a trailer, and home was also a trailer, and there was no one really in a good place. The support networks were destroyed. I was able to actually be there to give, you know, and it was great. It was School assemblies were something that was looked over, and the show evolved down in New Orleans. I started to figure out what worked. I started to figure out how I could really nurture became about nurturing the audience. That's really what it became about. And it worked because at the end of the show, Mardi Gras was in a couple of weeks, and we got into tons of discussions about that. People, Kids would talk about how wonderful their birthday party was, you know, a couple months ago. But it, it, it changed. It changed the zeitgeist, you know, in the little pocket where I performed. And I got lots of thank you letters. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's really lived with me, too. And that's, that's the cool thing about a performance. Whenever you hit a performance where everything starts to tingle and exchange really starts to happen, you live with the audience and the audience lives with you. And it becomes unforgettable. And once you have that experience as a performer, it becomes addictive. You can't stop. It's like you're not going to go back to a day job. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I've never had an addiction before in my whole life. Except for this. Theater, when it's really real, watch out. Because once you experience it, you will put yourself through insufferable pain to be able to have that experience again. So how do you get there? How do you get to... How do you get to that real? How do you get to that real? You said once you've experienced theater, it's real. There's nothing else that feels like that. I've experienced that. It took me years of work. And every time I experience it, you know, sometimes there's different levels to it even. You know, I think, oh, I found the level. You know, I've gone as deep as I can. And then, like, a year later, I'm like, oh, man, there's more. I mean, right now, I'm on a really good stint where every show I do is spectacular. Hopefully, it'll be that way the rest of my life. <laughs> like, I hope I've, I hoped I've figured out the thing, you know, for me as a storyteller, as a performer. But I'm curious how you get there. Like, I heard you talking about the development of a show, how you allowed the show to develop naturally, how you really let the show be what it was, how you how you made it grow up and go through its growing pains and you're doing it for three years now is that the process that gets you there giving the show the time to grow i think that you get 
starts off with a moment that is electrifying. What happens is, yeah, this is definitely what happens. You cover your bases. You put in all the hard work you can, and then you just relax. And you don't worry so much. And once you stop worrying, you can then come back to the moment. But if your brain is doing calculations because you're asking it to, and you're forcing it, if you're forcing anything, you've lost the moment. And that's that's really what is going on, I feel like. It's a moment where you're connecting energies, you're connecting... Everything's becoming connected, you know, and you need to have your stuff together before that can happen. Do you mean, in terms of your stuff, your emotional well-being, or are you talking about your performance abilities? Performance abilities and emotional well-being. Yeah, you can't bring that stuff to work. Definitely can't. You need to be a level-headed person, I feel like. Or... You need to be really passionate about what you do. You can't fake it, you know? You need to be like, this is... I don't know. You just can't doubt it. It's so hard, you know? People, it's so easy to, you know... You can't doubt it. You, you have to, you have to... I don't know. You have to, you have to trust it. You really have to trust it. And trust takes a long time. And that's probably why, you know, you really do need to work with something for a while and you develop a certain amount of trust and then you need to work with it probably a little, a little bit more and then you develop even more trust. Eventually you hit an even more real state. And then all of a sudden, I mean, this is something that's interesting. I think about it a lot. Whenever you're learning a circus trick of some sort, you've almost gotten it down. You're just really close to being able to get it every time and then all of a sudden it does a nosedive it crashes it burns and you question oh man did i even know it did i you're in an existentialist realm and it's like you put all this effort in and then right before you get it your your brain your body everything looks for this quick fix just one last is there an easier way to do it is there a quick fix you take that route for a while, it doesn't work, and then you realize, you know what, I just have to suck it up and do a little bit more, and then all of a sudden you get it. But there's this crash and burn that happens, like, really close to right before you get it, and people get discouraged by it, and wonderful things get lost right on the cusp. I mean, it's called the cusp for a reason. It can go one way or the other. It's hard to stay at it. It's really hard to stay at it. I mean, as artists, we're always going through, you know, that evaluation and hold judgment for a while and, and, and show it. I mean, part of with my art, I've gotten to perform for audiences everywhere around the globe. I mean, audiences, you know, in most of the continents and people that have no money. I mean, that's the beauty of circus, you know. You have grandparents, you have punk rock kids. I've even let animals into theaters, into shows, you know. You name it, everyone will show up. And whenever you have that, I mean, that's not something that happens with every single art. Normally you have a select demographic that wants to see it. And circus defies that in a beautiful way. And I'm really fortunate to kind of be in that mix. And with that, with getting to perform for everyone under the sun... There, there's a lot that you learn from it. So I was going to ask this later, but let's, let's really close to it right now. So, what are some lessons from the circus in terms of marketing? Lessons from the circus in terms of marketing. I mean, when I think of circus, I think of you know Barnum and Bailey's, who was the most well-known marketer of the 
the 19th century, uh, you know, right up there with Walt Disney in the 20th century in terms of marketing what he was doing. And in, in America, he really defines the word circus. You know, when you think of circus, you meet people immediately think of Barlin Bailey's circus. So I was just curious, in your experience in traveling, uh, what methods have you used to, to, or what methods have you been involved with that have worked to bring in full houses? Well, it's been set up for me, actually. By those things being in place, like Cirque du Soleil and Barnum and Bailey Circus, people are really riled up and really excited. And will really show up just at the word circus. Now, that's wonderful, but at the same time, what I'm doing is really different than those two groups. There are There is trapeze in shows. We do have high wire walking. Those things happen, but it's really physical theater. It's... it's, it's it's different. So the marketing is easy because of the genre that I'm in. Now what's difficult is, and the thing that always is just like, it becomes a conversation and a conversation, is circus entertainment, is it art? Well, art can be entertaining, and it should be. It really gets someone's attention. It needs to have ideas, though. I mean, the idea of art is it's loaded with thoughts. There's, there's, there's usually some sort of narrative that it has a beginning, a middle, an end. You know, all these things are happening. There's a huge movement right now for circus to have what's required of theater in it, and a lot of people that are traditional theater people are refusing to accept that. And well, guess what? It's it's there, and it's happening more and more and more. Even Barnum and Bailey, even Cirque du Soleil, the, the narrative is becoming stronger. You know, it's it's becoming more of a story. You can really, you can really kind of follow it all the way through. It's not just a trick, a trick, a trick, and that's what circus is having to work against. So the marketing, it just comes easy because of what's been in place. I mean, circus has been around for a very long time. What it did was back in the 1900s, it furnished us with original music. And then it also was a platform where people from all the different countries in Europe, you know, you had you had Russian performers, you had it's always been a, a hodgepodge of people from around the globe. So you would get to kind of spy, you get to really kind of experience multicultural theater. So the circus educated America, it excited America, it brought, you know, all these wild animals you know it, it was basically the zoo back then it it really served as an educational platform and also entertained us so what's been added more recently is is the theater part of it is added to it even more but um it's always been a sophisticated thing it's always been incredibly exciting and people still have that in their mind and they want to see it it's it's right there with apple pie and jazz, I think, you know. It's really part of America. So in your shows, I looked at your website and I saw that all of your shows seem to have a story theme to them. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about in terms of the movement of circus to move more into a narrative format. Right. Everything definitely has a, a definite storyline to it. And actually, the, one of the shows that we do looks at the idea of story. I mean, what we did was we looked at how you can tell a story. And we cut that down and we discovered that there's four ways to tell a story. Just There's more or less, perhaps, but we decided that there's four. And we linked it up with the four different seasons that we experience every single year. So in the wintertime, um, a story happens 
without any conversation at all. It's pure, just physical movement tells the story. In the spring, it's improvised. It happens haphazardly. You know, it's it's totally in the moment. In the summertime, uh, it is there is a person off stage narrating it, and in the fall, I pick up a book and actually narrate it to another actor and to the audience. So that was basically the idea, and um, it's really worked beautifully. Just telling a story about how you can tell a story. It's actually pretty interesting. It's wonderful. There are other circuses that inspired you in terms of working with story in the circus. Where did this idea come from? For me? Yeah. It came from, it came out of necessity because I became sick of performing meaningless acts without stories. And I've always loved stories. I mean, I've always been surrounded by storytellers. I've always wanted to tell people what I've been doing or whatever. And it was kind of the other way around. I was I was surrounded by, I found out what I didn't want and then inserted and changed it into what I wanted. And it really makes sense in terms of the journey of the audience. You know, it's sort of a, a prism that they can really see through. Yeah. You know what else? I, I'll be totally honest. Have you ever been to a hypnotist show? There's something to be learned from that. I mean, it's a really weird experience. And you, you kind of feel, they kind of rob you in a way. It's It's not... Not really pleasant in some regards, um, because you're being tricked to do things you don't want to do. Any storyteller should probably go to one, and they will definitely have some sort of reaction to it. But I've been to a couple, and I definitely took notes as to what the heck was going on. You know, I would love to be able to study with a hypnotist and find out, like, how do you get that tonal quality? What the heck is going on? Because I, I don't really know, but I took notes and kind of worked off of that to some degree yeah in those shows there's like there's counting there's a lot of like there was four steps then three then two and then he finally reached his destination you know it's kind of like everyone knows how to count down from three so it relaxes your mind perhaps i don't know but having those moments of where you really paint out those pictures it's, it's, uh, you know television is hypnosis and whenever you're watching a good storyteller Perhaps they're also, maybe that hits hypnosis. I don't know. Um, maybe maybe when you see a beautiful painting, maybe you're hypnotized by that. Um, I don't know what the definition of hypnosis is, but there's definitely something to be learned from it. And, uh, I mean, it, you should definitely be careful with it to some degree. It's something that I've thought about a lot as I've gone about writing performances. What I hear you talking about is the ability to... To get the audience to accept you. Yeah. And it's actually kind of tricky because I'm getting the audience to accept me and I'm doing dangerous things at the same time. Which, whoa, okay, here we go. And and I'm, I, and I'm a character that's making mistakes, you know. Maybe that's why, I don't know, you, you, want, them, you want them to side with you. You want them to, the danger element of circus I've never known how to deal with, to be completely honest. Because I could fall smack on my face, break an arm, all those things could happen. But yet, whenever I do a circus show, and this is very different than what most people do, I really play down the danger. I mean, did you seem concerned for my, for me last night at all? Or I think the last trick, yeah. The last trick, okay. Fair enough. Because the helpers were wearing helmets. That's, there we go. 
I'm just so happy that uh, that they put on, yeah, so willingly too. It's so wonderful whenever you have volunteers on stage, and they'll just jump in with you. You know, I love, I love the just having a little bit. You know, but having go, a crew. Go back to what you were talking about. You okay. were talking about you're playing down the danger, and you were talking about how the audience accepts you, and and working working through the show, and and just making it as normal as possible what you were doing in the middle of a performance i don't dumb things down you know i'm i'm going to use language that i want the audience to know there's there's no there's no pointing out the obvious you know and whenever you're talking about something being dangerous you're stating something that's very obvious you know life's short don't state the obvious state a little bit more you know kind of keep pushing it forward a little bit and that's really important, I think. So whenever you do have those shows, it's just focusing on the danger. It's like, all right, I got that. You're spending 30 minutes on that. What's going on with that? Let's keep going. Let's let's go to something new here. You can spend a moment on it, but then you need to take it to somewhere else. So why not share with them? I mean, there's a part where I'm riding a unicycle and juggling a bowling ball, which is throwing me from side to side. And really, to be able to do this, I need to be able to spot. I need to stare at something, and it needs to be at about eye level. And guess what? The only thing that's eye level is the audience, because I'm facing them. Anytime that you have a need, minus will feature it. So I simply ask an audience member, can you keep your head completely still? Can I stare at your nose? Uh, okay, sure. You know, all right. Don't move it. I'm serious. This is actually integral to me having a success. I mean, it seems like it's not, but it is. Please don't move your nose. There's something that happens with that. It, 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 it's, I'm doing something dangerous, but I'm sharing with you how I'm doing it. I'm sharing with you, you know, I'm spotting. I am, I am focusing on this person, you know, and I'm also asking that person not to mess with me, you know. And in that moment, the audience realizes that there's things that I need from them and that they should support me. And the audience member has never, I've never, ever been messed with. Actually, I've never had a volunteer on stage that's ever made my life miserable. And I don't think I know too many performers that can say that whenever they're working with audience members. And this is a really interesting conversation because what I hear us talking about is really, and this comes out of my work with computers, there's black hat and there's white hat with internet stuff. So white hat is you're doing stuff by the book. And black hat is you're using all the dirty tricks. <laughs> and what I hear you talking about is really very white hat. You're, you're kind of saying, how can I make the audience feel safe? How can I make the audience feel comfortable? How can I make the audience feel loved and entertained by me and, and go on this journey with me in a comfortable way? And I've heard other performers, I think that's what was so interesting to me about your, your performance is as I've is I've seen other performance do something a lot like what you were doing, but the audience at the end of the show was definitely wound really tight. They were wound tight because they were afraid for the performer. I watched your show, and people were into the show. I was watching the audience as well as you. People were into the show, but they weren't necessarily afraid. I mean, there were key moments when it was obvious. You know, you're carrying some sharp... You're, you're hurling some sharp, sharp objects through the air, <laughs> or you're four feet off the ground... They weren't as tight as a lot of audiences are in shows like yours I've seen before. And it's funny that you're you're grabbing onto this. I mean, the last act, it, it the whole show kind of has this idea of 
anything can be used to create a circus. You know, it's and it's an old rope on a hammock stand. It's, you know, it, it's everyday found objects are used through and through. And you're grabbing onto this last moment where I'm balancing on top of this teetering kitchen sink. And last night I performed it. To add to it, I juggled machetes. I performed that show that you saw about 10% of the time with machetes. The other 90% of the time, I perform it using juggling pins. You know, it, if I'm performing it... I, I don't think the machetes were necessarily part of the reason that... I mean, it was just clear that there was danger, they're sharp. But right. also, forget that, just you're balancing on a kitchen sink, and you were talking about how dangerous it is and make sure this That's is true. right. That's true. That's so, true. But then, now that raises a whole other question I'm going to go into here. I can't let that go. Why that 10%? Why that 90%? Why, why do you make that choice? The knives versus not using the knives? Yeah. What's the end, you know? It's like... I really look at the audience. Like, literally, in the moment, as the show's going on, I look up, and I... In my suitcase are both objects. I can grab either one. And based on the audience, I grab one or the other. It usually... And I always think I'm going to use the knives more often than not. But I always don't. I don't need them. You know what I mean? And again, it's... Do I need... The show is all about everyday, normal things becoming spectacular. The knives perhaps are a little excessive, you know. It's 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 a little bit, you know. It's 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 really it's I don't know. They're not needed, you know. Just it's funny though. I it, I do make that decision in every single show, and it almost always goes towards the juggling pins for some reason. I don't want to exclude anyone, and the whole you know if you're a role model and if my kid sees you juggling knives. He's going to go home and pick it up and throw that knife into the air and it's just going to be trouble, you know. And I've gotten that enough times that it's like, you know what, is it worth it? Because if that's what's going to be stuck in your mind at the end of the show, that is the furthest thing from what I ever wanted to happen. So guess what? I'm not going to do it. It's fine. That's not what the show's about, you know. So that's why I don't grab the knives that often is, is I've gotten that comment enough times and it's just like, okay. You're working the audience. You're making them feel comfortable. They really care about you. They're they're following along, and if there's a moment of danger, they're buying in to that danger without it really being necessary for you to describe the danger too much because they care about you. In terms of making the normal spectacular, you feel like a key part of that is is having your character be imperfect in some way. Oh, definitely. And so that that gives the up and down of the show more of an up and down because the down is further down. Right. The more contrast you can create, the better. But you need to still stay on theme, you know? You can't ask them to do something totally different. You know, there needs to be a path and then that single path needs to have a rise and drop in elevation. You can't send them on two paths because that just confuses things and that's not contrast. Does that make sense? We'll give an example of two paths. As far as the show, I, I, I don't take them on two paths. I stick to one, you know, and on that path I go... Do you mean the story or do you mean the acts? Uh, as I'm asking them to process one thing at a time and as I'm processing one thing at a time, the thing becomes very roller coaster esque I'm not asking them to think about this and this. I'm simply saying, think about this. Now, this is a little bit different. Now, this is really different. Now, this is really mundane. You know what I mean? But this doesn't change the separate this is. Yeah. Um, I think I just want to stop for a moment. I want to remind the listener that what we're talking about 
his showmanship and performance art. And as storytellers, if you are listening to this show because you're a storyteller, which most people are, we're talking about things that are sometimes difficult to talk about in storytelling. But we're talking about them really clearly because we're not talking about full-on oral storytelling. We're talking about the performance art of, of circus art and how you do it effectively using both story and and also using just the sense of the audience and working with the audience and making the audience feel comfortable. I think a lot of storytellers could benefit from listening to this conversation. This is Jim May, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. I want to bring Mike in the conversation. Uh, Mike, do you have a perspective, or why don't you introduce yourself for a second? My name is Mike Carroll. I've been working with Ben for the past eight years or so doing circus. Currently, I uh, do all the, the tech side of things for his show, you know, work on lighting, sound, kind of the grueling aspects of, you know, loading in, loading out. But, uh, you know, I've been a part of kind of what we've been doing for quite a while now. I'm a unicyclist by trade, so I uh, also have the, the performing aspect of things um, kind of from the circus perspective. It's really how I got into this mess in the first place. You know, in, in storytelling in general, it seems that, uh, you know, where circus differs mostly is really in the act. After seeing circuses kind of all over the world, really what seems to define it for myself is the presentation of acts, where you have the high wire walker, you have the hula hoop girl, and you have these very specific talents that are being shown off. Now, from this conversation, it seems that the importance on the skill itself might not be what's really kind of what what you're going after ben and uh what is your view on those specific acts and the place it has in circus versus the place it has in storytelling it's the idea of acts and i know for a fact that acts all of a sudden are jumping into storytelling more and more and i think the person that does it the most is is it david sedaris or what is it on it's on PBS he always goes act 1 act 2 act 3 who is it that does that no, it's not david sedaris but it's this idea of okay in 2009 we have an attention span that's much we have an attention span that likes acts right now you know well we liked it whenever vaudeville was going on too that ability of watching something for a little bit then 3 minutes later you're going to get to see something that's completely different but yet we don't want something completely different. We still want a little bit of the flavor of before. You don't just jump from, like, sports to... In the news, they go from segment to segment, and the feel, you know, the 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 prism of the television stays very similar. Well, they will go from sports to... to but there's the anchor, though. But, yeah, the anchor will switch, but they'll have the same outfit on. Right. You know, they'll look familiar. you got to have that. I think that's important in making, you know... You get, yeah, and that's back to the roller coaster that we were talking about. But the idea of having acts, having a story within a story, oh, that's something we always love. I mean, you know, that's been going on in theater forever. People love the story within a story, and then you start questioning, well, what is the actual story? Is it the, the, the story that's smaller? Is it the bigger story? I don't know, you know, and that leads to conversation and it leads to all sorts of things. Having... Beginning, middle, and ends within the beginning, middle, and end needs to happen all the time. Having different scenes, having, you know, all of these things. 
Um, there's there's a reason why they've stuck around, and again, there's a lot that can be learned from them. And the idea of an act having a, a really sculpted segment, um, it's important. We all, it's it's always used. It's always used. So what else in terms of your big your big tent? What's that like? Just describe that for us. When we set up our tent? Uh, no, no, like you know, how many people do you normally have from the crew, and how many? Oh. I mean, how many do you travel with when you do the big tent? How many acts do you have? The thing that I really love is getting to do art where it doesn't normally travel to. My favorite place is if you were to say, hey, where the... If I could, I would name drop all the little theaters that I've been to. And all the people that would never ever see a show that have shown up and seen a show. But that's not impressive. But that's impressive to me. You know? I love... I love performing in places that never get this stuff. So uh, we've performed at the Kennedy Center, we've performed at the White House, we've performed at some really big-name venues, but those aren't the ones that live with me so much because, guess what, you have, you know, a theater hand that's just totally, I don't know, there's not as much joy, you know. What is the acts? Who are the people? Who are the people? Okay, well, there's a tent. It's a really big tent that we have. We call it the Zany Tent. You can go to zanytent.com and look at it. And it's 120 feet wide and was handmade in Italy. You know, the idea of a hand actually making it, you know. People can see that. They can really see that. And this thing goes 40 feet up into the air. It just shoots up. Four people can set it up. No electricity is needed. Tier fours and big cables, you know. And the terminology that goes with it is absolutely wonderful, you know. You have your rostabouts, so four of them to put up our tent. Four people working on it. You have your king poles, your side poles, your quarter poles. Um, French oftentimes comes into the language as well. You have a venue that is magnetic. People just instantly, they see it and they want to know what's inside of it. You don't have to, you can have the worst show in the world, but if you set up this tent, guess what? You already got them, you know? People want to see what's inside of it. It's kind of I have like, a Civil War um, show. I wish I had the... The flag here. You know, I might have it here. I might show it to you in a minute. I have, I have the, I have a remade identical flags for my ancestors from the Civil War, remade stitch by stitch by the flag maker. I put up in front of an audience of kids. Doesn't matter how old they are. You know, I got five minutes because they will just sit there and look at these flags. They're just drawn to them. You know, and they're just the, you know, the names are on there. Gettysburg. It's just something about the handmade that people just look at, especially when it's big. Well, this is what we're working up against. We're working up against movies, and we're working up against television. And here we are, performance artists, sitting in front of a live audience. And guess what our job is? To convince people that we're real. You're not watching a movie. We're real. We're real, real, real. So whenever you have this flag behind you, which is real with every stitch... I mean, it's undeniable how real that is. That helps make it more memorable because you're saying this is real. So I just wanted you to describe some of the acts oh. in, in the tent. I didn't think about this till Mike described it, but in, in the circus, there are different people, specialize different things. So who do you normally have on your traveling acts? Um, it's been pretty much the same people for the last five years. We haven't really... Everyone's amazing. So the acts being, there's a clown act, there's a trapeze act, there's a high wire act, there's a unicycle act, there's a German wheel act, there's a juggling act. What's a German wheel act? Uh, German wheel is you become a penny, 
A person stands inside of a, a circle and basically rolls around like a penny. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. All those acts are in it. They are all there. No animals. We do not have them. People are complicated enough. <laughs> and then within that, you know, how do you get from one to the next? That's a great question to ask. And that's where you can really have fun with it. How do you start it off? How do you end it? Those are all the parts that I like to polish. Those are all the parts to work on. What are the relationships between the performers? Well, we already kind of covered that. Cause we covered that. about story and how story, you narrative and story. Yeah. What's different about what you're doing? I mean, you've already talked about how you use story in your acts to draw them together. But you are an American circus company. So when you compare yourself to the other circus companies in the United States, you know, there's a, there's a circus that comes here every year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a certain reputation. <laughs> I know. Yellow Springs is not like them. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to set up in that lot instead. What? I'd like to set up in that that space right across from Young's. Oh yeah, I know Dan. I could. Let's work on that. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to describe the reputation of your circus, what would people say? Well, I've talked about a lot what I do and the idea of sexy isn't really in it, you know? And that's really unusual because right now, guess what? Everyone wants to be sexy. I mean, everyone's like, give me leather, you know, give me the old cabaret, let me let me see some flesh, you know. The idea of sexy in the circus movement is really going strong. And uh, I hate it. It's so boring. It's just so boring, you know? Any time that I get asked to do that, I like charge ten times the amount of money that I normally do, you know. But you do it. Well, I have to make a living. <laughs> Performing at a history centers, kinda. But yeah, I mean, yeah, every once in a while, and I don't, I don't put those ones on the internet. Every performer has a gig where they feel like they've sold themselves out. But guess what? It pays the bills for a month, you know, and you do the Robin Hood thing. You know, you you, you take from you take from the rich and you give to the poor and you really take it. But but here's an interesting discussion. Is that just because is that just because it's the one gig where you actually charge your true value? Is that is it just because it's a gig that you're actually charging more because you don't want to do it? And if you just charged more for all the rest of the gigs, you'd just be in the money? Anytime you don't want to do something, you're going to charge more money. That's how, that's how it works, you know? If if you're in love with the idea, it's very rare that you get to charge the amount of money that you deserve. Like Robert Bluestone. Okay. He loves what he does. Okay. He loves what he does, and he charges an arm and a leg. Uh, I'm just, I'm not, I'm right. not saying no, this is right. true. You're right. I, I'm not but saying... I don't even tell... Oh, yeah. I'm talking a lot about like the the really like we'll go to galas and perform at galas. They want a circus act and we'll do that at galas. That really that helps pay the bills, you know. But by far we go to a lot more little theaters and big theaters and do shows, you know, where the ticket isn't $300, you know, to come to this gala. It's either $5 or else it's for free thanks to grants and state funding and some sort of sponsorship. And those are the gigs you said earlier that you really like to do. Right. Those are the ones I like to do. Now, I don't really know how I can get people in the doors that don't have any money or, you know, I don't know how to get these diverse audiences in the doors because that's what I like to do and then also get paid a ton of money. 
I can get paid all right, actually, with grants and people recognizing the value in what I do. But, you know, millions and such? No, you're going to need an audience that can shell out a lot of money for that. And that's what I'm not interested in. In particular, one of the things I see you doing is you are charging your worth. And you are deciding what you value and you're going after it. That's really important. Yeah. Surprise, a lot of artists aren't very good at those two things. I'm good at it, but it's taken a lot of time. Whenever I was starting out, it was funny, I would create a different persona. I would answer the phone and say, my name is Scott Mendelson, and I am Ben Soda's agent, and what type of show do you want? You know, they'd be talking to me, but I couldn't do it, you know? I couldn't say my own worth, so I created this whole other person to do my business it was crazy but yet i was able to live with it and it was did it work able to, yeah i was able to make a living now i've switched over i don't i don't even talk numbers nothing you get a piece of paper you get a pdf document and you can make the decision on your own i made my decision in the comfort and in a in a state where i'm not getting you know any weird things thrown at me and then I give you that piece of paper, and then you can go make that decision in a place where I'm not messing with you. There's no, I'm not starting off the business relationship with haggling and swindling, and I'll give you a half price, and there's no manipulation going in, which means that I have a lot better experience the whole way through. I would lose my mind if I was doing all that stuff all the time with all of the people I worked for. I have, I must say that all of our clients, all the people we perform for, there's something special about them. It's, it's, it's a really wonderful relationship. I haven't worked for someone that I didn't like in years. And that's really important. Yeah. I think I just discovered a new way to organize the financial side of my practice. <laughs> uh, well, we're running out of time. So what is your offer? My offer is if you would like to have a show and you're able to get a minimum of 300 people together, and that can be outside, that can be in a theater, if you're at a university or school, to contact me, you can go to www.zanyumbrellacircus.com and get my contact information. And if you are an organizer or something like that and you do have access to some money or you have a grant that you want to go after and you just need a proposal to get it, um, contact me and what I'll do is I'll show you my work. I will send you a DVD of the work that we do and you can watch it in full. The website also is beautiful. It's completely kinetic and it really does, it really shows you who we are, but the first 10 people that get in touch with me, I'll send a full DVD to. Hopefully, the circus will come there. You want someone to contact you through an organizational email or through letterhead from a presenting organization of some type. You need to be bona fide. For people who aren't presenters, um, you have a... We have a really cool email list that talks about traveling and doing art in Afghanistan and Jordan and Ethiopia and all these stories from traveling all over the world. And you can either check the website and read the blog or else you can subscribe and get it the moment I send it whenever I'm in a, we're in a really faraway place. And you should do it. They're wonderful. 
I just want to take a moment to remind the listeners listening before the show and to welcome the listener who may be listening for the first time that I have on my on my website at storytellingwithchildren.com slash storytelling a free e-course, The Zen of Storytelling in Seven Simple Steps. It's a nine-part email course with resources and it takes just a few days to get. I think it's a nine-day course and it's free. Sign up today storytellingwithchildren.com slash storytelling. Do you have any last words of advice for the international storytelling community? Do it again and again and again in front of a person that's different and a person that is unlike the first person you talk to and a type A personality and a type B personality and just keep doing it. Change as many things as you can and whenever it starts becoming the same, even though everything else has changed, then you're getting somewhere. So I feel like tonight we've really talked about how how to really take care of your audience. How you can really be good to your audience and how you can create a relationship with your audience that will carry you through the entire show. It's just such an important lesson. And in many ways, we all, whatever art form we're into, we all could do a better job of doing it. I'm really glad to have you on. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Wolf. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.